from St. Louis Public Radio. This is St. Louis on the Air. What exactly his priorities are beyond just being against everything Joe Biden stands for? I'm really confused about why nobody is digging into the question of why Eric Schmidt put the Catholic Church before the people of Missouri. I've seen enough of uh, Republican senators in this uh, state. So opponents are saying that, you know, any measure that contains penalties really isn't legalizing anything. One of the most expensive gubernatorial campaigns in history. Yeah, because J.B. Pritzker is the richest politician in America. Just the same old scare tactics. I'm Emily Woodbury. The midterm elections are one week from today, so we invited the St. Louis Public Radio politics team to help us sort through the campaigns and issues so that we can all feel confident heading to the ballot box. With me now are political correspondent Jason Rosenbaum and State House reporter Sarah Kellogg. Jason, Sarah, thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Thanks for having us. So let's start with you, Jason, and Missouri's U.S. Senate seat. So we have on the Democratic side, Trudy Bush Valentine, nurse and heir to the Anheuser-Busch fortune, and Eric Schmidt on the Republican side, attorney general of Missouri since 2019. He also served as Missouri state treasurer from 2017 to 2019. Um, Of course, this is the new senator to succeed, GOP Senator Roy Blunt, who is retiring after serving in the role since 2011. Um, What stands out to you about how this race has played out since the primaries, Jason? It's definitely been different than other U.S. Senate races that I've covered. This is not a nationally targeted race anymore. So basically, both candidates are on their own to promote their messages, And it's also just been a lot more issue-oriented than the primary, which kind of centered around former Governor Eric Greitens' troubles, which I'm going to use euphemistically. And that was a wild GOP primary. (laughs) uh, Yes, the difference in stress level between the primary and general is pretty palpable. But no one cares about my stress level. They care about what these candidates are, are saying. And for the most part, Schmidt is tailoring his message around this idea that Missouri voters are not happy with President Joe Biden's agenda. So he has made a lot of headlines by initiating lawsuits against the Biden administration on a host of issues, most notably against vaccine mandates. And he is also speaking out against the the policies involving energy, involving education, And I think that he is really banking on the idea that Missouri has become a red state and they like this type of messaging and that he'll it'll carry the day on. Conversely, Bush Valentine, I think, is really trying to hit on a lot of issues that are going to excite the Democratic base. She's in favor of stricter gun laws. She is vehemently opposed to Missouri's abortion ban and has been criticizing Schmidt over the air about that. And as a way to kind of bring Um, rural voters into the fray, she has really attacked Schmidt on a vote in 2013 when he was a member of the state Senate, allowing for the foreign ownership of farmland. I'd like to open the phone lines this hour. We want to hear from you. 
Who are you voting for to represent Missouri in the U.S. Senate? What has stood out to you so far about the messaging from the candidates? Call us at 314-382-8255. That's 314-382-TALK. You can also send an email to talk at stlpr.org or tweet us at STL on air. Jason, you had a talk or you had a chance to talk with Trudy Bush Valentine and you asked her about her pledge to file a bill to ban foreign ownership of farmland. She said this is one of the first things she wants to do if elected. And you asked her if it would mean that companies like Smithfield, which is owned by a Hong Kong based company, or JBS, which is owned by a Brazilian company, would be forced to sell their U.S. farmland. And this was her response. I'm not saying every country, but I'm saying communist country like China, who is not for us, should not be owning the farmland. We've got to get much more into Smithfield. We've got to get much more into JBS. 50% of our beef is being produced by foreign companies. 25% of our pork is being produced by foreign companies. We have to look at this the whole way around, we have to look at the maybe 40 million acres in this country that are owned by foreign countries. Jason, what do you make of that answer? Oh, well, I think I asked that question very purposely because I was just in Northeast Missouri doing a longer story on the political shift there. And one of the things I was asking farmers in particular was whether this attack is actually going to resonate in an area that Democrats need to gain ground in. And I want to be clear to you and our listeners, I was talking with Democratic farmers that do not like the fact that Smithfield exists. And their response is that that type of attack may seem good in abstract, but to people who are actually farmers, if you're not within the pork space, and Smithfield is primarily a pork entity, um, that that attack is meaningless to you because you can't prove to a farmer how that is going to affect their ability to operate. And I, I don't I don't know. I I hear that clip and I know why Democrats are trying to use it against Schmidt because it involves China. China is a very unpopular country among the American electorate, and that vote would seem to be a liability for Schmidt. But I think from a practical standpoint, it opens up questions about, like, what happens to the existing, you know, footprint of these companies. And I, I don't know if Bush Valentine really answered that question to my satisfaction, if I have to be honest about it. And what do we know about, um, you know, farmers that maybe lean Republican or conservative? I mean, Schmidt uh, voted in 2013 to allow foreign ownership of farmland. Is that something that they're concerned about. I, I think that's, again, I, I don't, mm -hmm. I think that they may be concerned about it optically. But again, if they can't, if you can't prove that it's going to affect their bottom line, I, I think that, that that will make the attack less potent, especially if other issues that appeal to farmers who are already inclined to vote Republican supersede that. So for Eric Schmidt, he hasn't responded to your quest, request for an interview nope. this year. Um, but we do have a clip of Schmidt speaking after he won the primary. This gives us a sense of some of his priorities. Let's take a listen. We are entering the most consequential decade in American history since the Civil War. That's right. yeah. 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 The Democrats aren't playing small ball. 
They're playing for keeps. They're two votes away, two votes away in the United States Senate from packing the Supreme Court, adding states to the union, federalizing our elections, instituting amnesty and open borders, destroying our economy with the Green New Deal. They want to fundamentally change this country forever. So I'm hearing a lot of anti-messaging there, anti-Democrat, anti-Biden messaging, not a lot of his own priorities. And, and that's the reason why it is when I say like I have asked his campaign numerous times since the primary, will we come on politically speaking? Is there an event that I can go to and watch him make a speech or talk with him afterward? And I haven't gotten a response to either of those things. And I think the reason why that is such an important thing for me to do rather than just, you know, it's a due diligence thing whenever you can or campaign is it's kind of unknown like what he's going to do as a U.S. senator and what he is actually going to advocate for rather than just vote against everything that Joe Biden proposes. I mean, there are things that you can kind of read between the lines based off his prior experience. When he was a state senator, he was very active at being in the mix of high-level legislation that passed through that chamber involving like, you know, uh, insurance mandates for certain autism treatments are, you know, I, I, another thing that he was involved in in 2011 was a special session aimed at steering cargo from China to Lambert St. Louis International Airport. Like, he was a very, like, impactful senator. And I think that there is evidence that he may be an impactful U.S. senator. What exactly his priorities are? beyond just being against everything Joe Biden stands for? I mean, I just can't answer that question unless he avails himself to reporters like me. I know it sounds whiny, but, like, I can't read his mind, you know? I'd like to go to the phone lines. Chris is calling in from St. Louis. Chris, you're on St. Louis on the air. Uh, thanks. Yeah, I had, so I'm a Catholic survivor. I participated or tried to participate in his investigation of the Archdiocese of St. Louis and found it to be a sham. And I'm really confused about why nobody is digging into the question of why Eric Schmidt put the Catholic Church before the people of Missouri. Mm. Jason, is this on your radar? What What are your thoughts I on do, Chris's question? I do recall before Eric Schmidt became attorney general that uh, his predecessor, Josh Hawley, I think initiated that investigation. I did do some reporting on that. Um, I, I think that there has been some general criticism of how he's been attorney general, and that may be part of it. Um, but I, I, I don't know enough about, like, how he conducted that uh, uh, investigation to really comment further. Yeah. Well, Chris, thank you for your call. Now, next is Jerry in O'Fallon. Jerry, thanks for calling in. You're on St. Louis on the Air. Well, I really wasn't going to call in, and I just heard that 10 or 15 second uh, excerpt from Eric Schmidt, and it's just the same old scare tactics. Uh, the Green New Deal is going to cause Armageddon. Um, you know, actually, Whoever is going to be in, on board with uh, newer technologies is going to own the future. That's uh, if, for, if you study history. And um, yeah, it really has nothing. And on the other hand, I, I have to say that uh, uh, this Bush is um, really kind of like, you know, non-existent. I just really doesn't say much. I know I've seen her commercial as well. And 
about the uh, farmland, but the, if anyone cares to take a look, the actual uh, size of Lake of the Ozarks is relatively small. So, Jerry, I'm curious, you don't sound enthusiastic about either candidate. Do you know how you'll be voting next week? Oh, I'll vote for uh, Trudy Bush. I mean, uh, I've, I've, I've seen enough of uh, Republican senators in this uh, state, you know, especially with our most recent um, Senator Hawley. Jerry, thank you so much for your call. And before we get to a break, I want to ask you, Sarah Kellogg, about something else that Missouri voters will be asked about next week when they go to the ballot box. They're going to be asked whether they would like to call a convention to amend the state's constitution. What exactly is a state constitutional convention and why is this on the ballot? Yeah, so this is a question that per Missouri's constitution must appear on the ballot every 20 years or so. And yeah, it's a question on whether voters want to create this convention to amend it. And so it would require uh, Governor Mike Parson to call an election of delegates, and then any changes would then be up for a vote for consideration by Missouri voters. And do you have any ideas on who would be most interested in the state on hosting such a convention? Are people really jazzed about this or is it kind of just I a mean, thing we have to do? <laughs> yeah, it is. A, it kind of is a question that kind of has to appear. You know, Missouri voters haven't gone for it in the recent past. I mean, for example, 2002, 65% of voters said no. And, you know, it, it, the Missouri's constitution now, because of the initiative petition, because of lawmakers, it is pretty vast and there's lots of things on it. But I don't know what exactly the appetite is for for amending the Constitution. We're talking this hour with Jason Rosenbaum, St. Louis Public Radio's political correspondent, and Sarah Kellogg, who is our State House reporter. We need to take a short break. When we come back, we'll discuss Amendment 3, known as Legal Missouri 2022, which would legalize recreational use of marijuana in the state for people 21 and older. We'll be back in just a moment. This is St. Louis on the Air. Welcome back. Consider today's show your voter guide ahead of next week's midterm elections. With us this hour are Jason Rosenbaum and Sarah Kellogg. Jason is our political correspondent here at St. Louis Public Radio, and Sarah is our state house reporter. And um, we asked you if you are in support of the proposal to legalize recreational cannabis in Missouri. If you are, if you aren't, we want to hear from you. Give us a call at 314-382-8255. Or tweet us at STL on air. So, Jason, what would league, or actually rather, Sarah, what would legalization in Missouri look like as this proposal lays it out? Yeah, there's a lot of questions about this amendment, and and some for legalization for judges are not for this amendment and are campaigning against it. But what it would look like is it would expand, it would make some changes to the medical system, but it would expand for those 21 and older to you to own or. I guess, possess and use some amount of marijuana in the state, even if they're not medical patients. And I think this amendment is unique because, I mean, I personally have been hearing from many people online who support legalizing marijuana, but they say this ballot measure doesn't go far enough. Can you speak to that? 
Yeah, there's a lot of criticisms on this amendment in addition to people who are for it. Uh, some of it is, you know, there is a limit of how much someone could have. Uh, you know, a non-medical patient would be able to have up to three ounces. Now, John Payne, campaign manager for Legal Missouri 2022, says those limits are due to the fact that this is still a federally prohibited substance. But there's also, you know, there could be penalties for smoking marijuana in public. So opponents are saying that, you know, any measure that contains penalties regarding marijuana, even is, quote, legalizing it, really isn't legalizing anything. And what do we know about the ability to come back? Like, let's say this does get passed, voters do pass it, and they want to kind of come back the next year and then bring in some of these elements that aren't in the bill currently. Is that possible? Or is it kind of like a now or never, we need to have it all in one? Yeah, there's... the passage of Amendment 3, you know, this would put this in the Missouri Constitution, and the Missouri Constitution would trump any legislature, you know, any bills that the legislature would pass. And so it would complicate those things. Now, Legal Missouri says there are bills that the legislature could pass, but they do have to be wary of that. And, and yeah, there is the question of wanting to wait for a better opportunity. But, you know, Payne says that's unlikely to come if we're relying on the legislature. But there are legislative members who disagree and say, you know, they're ready to, to get at it next year. Mm. Now, Sarah, something else um, we're looking at, an amendment in Illinois. This is a big issue in Illinois. Amendment one on collective bargaining. Um, If this passes, Illinois would become the first state in the nation with a constitution that bans laws that exempt workers from paying dues for union representation. This is commonly known as right to work laws. What can you tell us about amendment one? What should Illinois voters know? Well, for the details, I would definitely turn to Illinois Public Radio folks who have been on this. But from what I understand, basically, Illinois voters will decide whether the right for workers to form unions and participate in collective bargaining would be in the state's constitution, and it would prohibit the state or local governments from passing or enacting laws that would interfere with that right. So yeah, it is intended to prevent the state from passing, you know, right to work laws. But there's disagreement over the wording. You know, it has some support of some labor unions, but it has the opposition of groups, including the Illinois Association of School Boards. Also on the Illinois side, Jason, is the gubernatorial race um, between Governor J.B. Pritzker, the Democrat seeking a second term in office, and State Senator Darren Bailey on the GOP side, who was endorsed by former President Donald Trump. Um, You wrote or someone wrote on our voter guide that this race is shaping up to be one of the most expensive gubernatorial campaigns in history. Yeah, because J.B. Pritzker is the richest politician in America and is spending almost like I, I imagine he has donations, but he's using a lot of his own money. In so this not contest. a lot of outside money here. I, I, I actually don't think that like Democratic or Republican gubernatorial groups are getting involved with that this race for the very reason I mentioned. Like Republicans don't want to spend a lot of money against someone with literally unlimited resources in a state that has tilted pretty heavily toward the Democrats. If Missouri is tilting Republican, Illinois is almost a mirror image where it is tilted pretty clearly for the Democrats, not only because they have Chicago, but many of the suburbs around it have become more Democratic, too. And I think that's the biggest challenge of someone like Bailey, who's from downstate Illinois. He is conservative on on things like being opposed to gun control and being opposed to abortion rights. I'm from Illinois. There has never been an Illinois governor in my entire lifetime, including Republican ones who have opposed abortion rights. So if Darren Bailey is able to win this, he would be breaking a lot of new ground. 
It does seem, um, you know, it seems like crime, at least from the ads in the state, are is a really big theme. And it, and it almost seems like crime is kind of a bigger theme just generally in all the midterm elections. That's something that, I don't know, is really, especially in Illinois, highlighting that rural-urban divide between, like, what's happening in Chicago and the rest of the state. It's become a common Republican issue to attack Democrats on. Like Ann Wagner, who's running in the second congressional district, is is using that in her race against Democrat Trish Gunby. You've seen Eric Schmidt do the same thing with with Trudy Bush Valentine. I think that I think that's obviously something that can be used in a campaign, but it's a bigger question about whether a governor or a U.S. senator can really affect crime more than like a local police department or a local prosecutor, I think from like a practical standpoint, I don't think that they really can. I think a governor can certainly do more than a U.S. senator on like a broad policy basis. But I think this is election year fodder as opposed to like something that they're actually going to be able to execute. Mm. In Illinois' 13th congressional district, this is between um, Nikki Buskinski and Reagan Deering. Nikki on the Democratic side and Reagan on the Republican side. Now, this is an open seat created as a result of redistricting, and it includes parts of the Metro East. Yeah. Um, I love redistricting, and it's been a sight to behold, like how Illinois Democrats engaged in just brutal partisan gerrymandering against uh, Republicans. It was like one of the few states where they were uh, was actually successful. New York Democrats tried to do that, and it got overturned. I would say that if the 13th district is close in a district that was purposely drawn to elect a Democrat, or if the Republican wins, I think it's a signal that Republicans are not only going to win the U.S. House, but they're going to win 30 or 40 seats because this district should not really be that competitive. There's another district in the 17th district in like that sneaks around like, I guess, the western part of the state, which is actually competitive and may or may not go Republican. But really, this is not a seat Democrats should lose. And if they do end up losing it, it's probably a signal that it's not a good night nationally for Democrats. Mm. So this is a race to look closely at. I think so. And, and also we want to know who is representing the Metro East in Congress because I would say Missouri and Illinois uh, lawmakers on the Metro East side work together closely on issues. Now, Jason, we just talked about crime being a theme, and I would say crime has been a theme for the uh, campaigns for the St. Louis Board of Aldermen president. Um, St. Louis voters will decide on the next president of the Board of Aldermen, and the winner will serve the remaining five months of Lewis Reed's term. What can you tell us about the two candidates in this race? So Megan Green has been an alderwoman in the 15th Ward, which is, I guess, South Central St. Louis, I think since 2014. She's really tried to wave this quote-unquote progressive banner on the board by being for, you know, the city passing a minimum wage increase and kind of being, from a more national perspective, a big supporter of uh, former presidential candidate Bernie Sanders. Um, I, I think that she wants to try and bring that office into that ideological direction. Jack Coder, who's an alderman from the Seventh Ward, which is kind of downtown Soulard area. I don't want to say like it's it's the the issue about like describing people in St. Louis politics as like conservative or liberal is kind of deceiving because they're all more liberal than say Republicans in Missouri. But I think that he is trying to argue that 
he is at least to the center compared to Megan Green and really wants to focus on, you know, crime fighting and trying to make sure that, like, enough development happens. I think that the issue with this race for me is, you mentioned it's only for five months. These are two white candidates in a state that's almost, or in a city that's almost evenly divided between African Americans and white residents. And if there's a race in, when there's a race in March, if there's a black candidate that runs against either one of them, it's very possible that whoever wins this could only serve for a few months because I don't, I think that the dynamics of the race drastically change after that. Now, in our our final few minutes, Jason, I want to touch briefly on the Missouri's uh, 2nd Congressional District. This is a race between Republican incumbent Ann Wagner and Democrat State Representative Trish Gunby. Um, It seems like uh, abortion is playing into this race quite a bit. What can you tell us about the differences in their policy positions there? So I talked with Trish Gunby and Ann Wagner last week. Gunby is trying to make the demise of Roe versus Wade a major issue in this race that includes a lot of the St. Louis suburbs. And she is banking on the uh, like I assumption that suburban voters are repelled by Missouri's abortion ban, which bans abortions except for medical emergencies. And I think that she told me she's making that a, her primary issue because she thinks that backlash over that could give her a lot of support. Wagner is saying that issues like inflation and energy and crime are, are more top of mind in the second district. I think it'll be interesting to see who's right on this. This district is more Republican than it was in 2020. But I think if this race is pretty close, it could be a signal that there really was a backlash in the suburb over the Dobbs, suburbs over the Dobbs decision and that Democrats are energized enough to make a race that was a district that was drawn to help Republicans pretty close. And both are good candidates. Trish Gunby's a state rep who won a Republican seat in 2019. Wagner has beaten two strong Democratic opponents in the last two election cycles. It's an exciting race. Now, we weren't able to get to all the races on the ballot in Illinois and Missouri. Um, so I just want to encourage everyone to check out our voter guide online where you can check out all the information on the um, ballot initiatives, amendments, and uh, races happening in both states. That's at stlpr.org slash voter guide. I also highly encourage you to check out the Politically Speaking podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And Sarah, briefly before we go, I just this is kind of a PSA that Missouri voters will need a valid photo ID to vote next week. What counts as a valid ID? Um, that would be a state or government issued one. So that would be a driver's license, a passport, a military ID. It is important to note that these should not be expired documents for the most part, um, but valid state driver's license, photo ID, military ID, those would be along the realm that that is accepted. You can get a free photo ID um, from the Missouri Department of Revenue or by calling 573 526 8683. That's 573-526-VOTE to get your ID for next Tuesday. Jason, Sarah, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you. Jason Rosenbaum is St. Louis Public Radio's political correspondent, and Sarah Kellogg is our State House reporter.
Today's episode was produced by Emily Woodbury and Alex Hoyer, with audio engineering and podcast design by Aaron Dorr. Our production intern is Avery Rogers. Our executive producer is Alex Hoyer. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio. Understanding starts here. Our podcast proudly supports St. Louis artists by using music from Life Creative Group. Do you find yourself regularly listening to episodes of St. Louis on the Air? Suggest us to a friend you think might enjoy our conversations and leave us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the simplest way to help people discover our show. Thank you. St. Louis Public Radio is a member-supported service of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to conservation and careful management of the state's forests to make them more resilient and better habitats for wildlife. Choosewood.com.